Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim Desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. How do you value a business? How do you value a business for the basis of a non-bank lender? Well, here to help us understand this world is Ronald Kahn. He is the managing director of Lincoln International, and he's based in Chicago, but he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Ron, always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. You know, maybe let's just begin with something called the Lincoln Middle Market Index. Tell us what it is, and then we'll get into the issue of valuations and privately held companies. Great. Okay, so you know that Lincoln International is a middle market investment banking firm. In addition to our M&A and debt advisory capabilities, we have valuation capabilities as well. And the valuations are basically for non-bank lenders. If you remember 2008, 2009, the world turned upside down. Banks got out of middle market lending. Non-banks got involved. Um, public BDCs, private D BDCs, private debt funds, and most of them need valuations. Um, they need it because if they're public, they want it um, conform with SEC regulations. If they're not public, um, many of them are leveraged, and their lenders to the to these lenders also want valuations. So, result of that, we have this a massive amount of data on privately held companies. Yeah. Basically, we've been doing this since 2008. We have 70 non-bank lenders. We do about 1,200 portfolio companies every quarter. And as a result, we, as I said, we have all this financial information. We've been doing reports on the number of companies that show earnings growth year over year, revenue growth year over year. That we've done, and other people have done that. But we thought at the beginning of the year, what happens if you could create an index an index that depicts the value of middle market companies, enterprise value. So that's earnings plus their multiple. I had no idea how to do an index. I mean, that was like way beyond me. But we wound up um, collaborating with Steve Kaplan, who is a professor at the University of Chicago booth. Steve, Steve is probably the preeminent expert on private equity. He brought in one of his colleagues, Mike Minnis, who's a professor of accounting, and they figured out the math. They looked at all this data and said, we, we can pull this together. Right. So about 10, to, 10 days ago, we came out with this Lincoln Middle Market Index, 
which again um, depicts the, the enterprise value of an average middle market company. Middle market companies, we, we define for the index as companies that have an EBITDA of $100 million or less, but the average in this is $27, $28 million um, in EBITDA, and there's about 350 companies in the index. So, Ron, before we get to uh, just the valuations themselves, I would love for you to give us a sense of how much this market of middle market corporate debt and company equity, uh, how much it's grown. Because as you mentioned, business development companies are a big buyer of these companies, but it's not just them. Private equity firms are getting into private debt. So are hedge funds, so are insurance companies. This has been a holy grail increasingly. So how much has this market increased? It, it has increased exponentially. And, and, and some of it has replaced the banks, the middle market banks. So, so many of them used to be lenders to, to private equity firms, to these middle market companies, they pretty much have, have exited the market. Interestingly, they happen to be very big lenders to these new private debt funds, the, these um, or, or, or BDCs. So they might almost have as much money in the middle market today as they did before, but in a different, um, in a different aspect. But the, but the, the number of these, we, we probably have, when on the debt advisory side, we probably could go to Oh, I would say 150, 175 non-bank lenders today. That, that's, that's how big the universe is. What is the bias of the non-bank lenders when it comes to valuation? Um, well, I think that I they, know I'm it, putting you on the hot seat a little <laughs> bit, but but I think it's it's useful because they were also they have to respond to the market dynamic, right? I mean, they can't just uh, ignore what their investors are looking for. Um, that's right. I mean, many, many of these are SEC reporting entities, so they, they, they do want to play it down the middle. Um, and, I, and I think, as I said, we do 1,200 portfolio companies every quarter. I, I, th- I think our clients are very, very um, honest in what they're reporting. I, I think they do a really good job because, you know, the consequences are just <laughs> they're, they're staggering. So I think, I think everybody wants to play it by the book. So you said that there are 150, 175 uh, non-bank lenders that you could go to. What's that up from, say, five years ago? Oh, probably in 2008, 2009. I bet there weren't more than 25, 30. Holy cow. Um, I mean, right, right, right now there, 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 there are 55, 60 public BDCs up from 25, 30, probably in 2008. Business development also, yeah. corporations, Business right? Development the, corp- like a pass-through, also, like a REIT pass-through. Um, the new and the newest private BDCs, they are just um, phenomenal. So I I think you probably have close to um, ninety five billion. I think is the last time I saw between public and private BDCs asset under management. And I can't imagine that that it was much more than twenty billion in two thousand eight. So it, it 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 has been exponential. Are you concerned about the lending standards, considering how much money is chasing the companies? Um, I, I, I um, that's a really good question. I mean, lending, it, it is certainly a borrower's market today. Um, the one thing that I think is, is, is a governing factor is we see that debt as a percent of total enterprise value is still in the 60, 65% range, which means there's about 35 to 40% equity below them. Um, in terms of enterprise value. Now, the, the, the flip side of that is enterprise values themselves are, are rather frothy because multiples have gone up considerably. Yeah. 
um, debt today. It, it is not uncommon for companies to get six times leverage. Um, middle market companies yeah. are getting five to six times leverage. It's getting, it's and getting I, a and, little and, 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 I, and I will say what, what does concern me a little bit, pro forma adjustments. Most of these companies are lending or selling off of pro forma adjustments. Ron Kahn, thank you so much for joining us. Managing Director of Lincoln International, based in Chicago, but joining us here in our 1130 studios. This is Bloomberg. Well, turmoil in Germany will not end that soon. The latest news just crossing the Bloomberg now. German Chancellor Angela Merkel said she would prefer to go ahead with new federal elections rather than try to form a minority government. Uh, She is weighing her options after the collapse of four-party coalition talks late Sunday. Here to talk about the implications of this is Kit Jukes. He is chief global FX strategist for Societe Generale. He is coming to us from London. Kit, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, You know, there was a little bit of weakening in the euro initially last night as we got news of uh, four-party coalition talks breaking up yesterday. That has reversed, but this latest bit of information uh, might change the picture. What's your take? Yeah, this latest piece will see um, the euro come under a little bit of pressure uh, again. You know, There's obviously going to be a lot of uncertainty that there's, I guess, potentially four outcomes. Uh, You know, they they continue or they resume the coalition talks and this uh, Jamaica coalition revives itself. I suppose that's still technically possible. Um, Or or you can have a minority government, which Angela Merkel says she's not planning at the moment, where she remains as chancellor and relies on presumably the FDP to to support her when she needs support on on an ad hoc basis. Um, That would have looked like very little change to an outsider. It would have had significant domestic implications, but it would have been the kind of government you might have seen in various other bits of Europe. And I think that's what was giving the market cause to say, look, this isn't, this isn't concerning us too much. Um, we've never had, uh, we've never had a, a minority government in, in Germany since the, uh, in sort of modern times, since, since the Second World War, I don't think. Uh, and we've not had fresh elections to try to solve the problem that way over that period either. Um, but that's the other alternative. So and we'll continue with the uncertainty. Um, I, I still, you know, when we look at, at potential outcomes for markets, if the foreign exchange market's relatively insouciant, um, the fixed income market, um, e- equally so. It hasn't had a significant impact on, on European government bonds. It's not making people nervous. The European Central Bank sits behind uh, the markets and keeps things calm. The, the economy's moving ahead in Germany. It's moving ahead in Europe. So the fact that there's political uncertainty, in fact, stability and status quo, which is all you get with with this inability to form a government, isn't isn't the worst thing to to, you know, to see. But I think the markets, you know, they, they will be nervous until they know what does come out. And I suspect we might be sort of grindingly, increasingly nervous over the next few days. Kit, uh, just to tell people, why is it called the Jamaica Coalition? It has to do with the colors of the Jamaican flag. Yeah, I, I'm going to really have to work hard in terms of the colors of the, of the Jamaican Coalition. But it's the um, it, it's the the black, red, uh, yellow, green that you get to get a coalition of the uh, correct um, of the. <laughs> right. So you get the free dem- the free Democrats are the are the yellow right and the the green obviously the green and the Christian green. Democrats are, are are the black. The uh, free Democrats they're pro business. What 
do they not like or what do they like about the potential coalition? Or does it have really to do with migration and uh, immigrants? More to do with migration policy, I think. There were accusations within the the coalition talks that they'd planned for a while to be pulling out and that this was a... Um, you know, sort of a, an impromptu move that seemed remarkably well planned, if that's the right way of putting it. Um, so it, it was always going to be hard to get them in. And, and they, they, in a sense, would be the ones who would be happiest with um, with continuing uh, with a minority government and saying, right, there are things we don't like, but we'd quite like to have power and just we're not going to promise a coalition deal where we yeah. sign up to certain things. We'll back you on an ad hoc basis. Kit, uh, is it fair to view the latest developments in Germany through the lens of populism and sort of the increase that we've seen in this populist uprising, whether it's the U.S. or whether it's Italy or Spain or or wherever. I mean, is it basically another iteration of that, but this time in Europe's most important economy? Well, uh, if, if we have a, if we have another round of elections, I think most people would expect that the big winners would be um, the AFD party, so the, the most populist party, uh, and, and so it, it would certainly be interpreted that way. I, and part of me wonders whether this is about populism or whether this is about a, a push away from traditional parties. Um, you could argue you could argue whether President Trump is populist or isn't really a Republican. He's just flying under the flag, and it's a move away from the sort of heartland of the policies of, 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 of your two main parties in the States. And Likewise, in other countries. So, we, you know, we could we could argue about the, the terminology, but it's certainly away from the accepted, established over the last fifty years sort of order of which are the big political parties into something that's got a populist element, but is also, I think, much more much more uncertain, much more fluid. Changes a lot. Wouldn't you expect to see a sell-off in European sovereign debt? Um. You know, that is more of a measure of uncertainty than anything else. And what's happening even now as we speak, staring at my screens, is, um, you know, Spanish and Italian debt is outperforming slightly uh, German government debt today. So, um, you know, it's not risk aversion. It's more the Germans are doing less well than the others, which looks like stability from, from most angles. So, you know, you've got to remember that we've still got the European Central Bank buying government bonds on a regular basis and standing by in the market and has negative interest rates underneath it. So, yeah. um, you know, when everything's difficult, there aren't very many government bonds to sell. And, and, and that is almost coming back to the core of it. At this point in time, the European Central Bank is, is what matters most. Uh, the euro is weakening on this news against the dollar now at one point one seven. Do you think that it will uh, continue to weaken through year end and kind of give rise uh, to strengthen the dollar? I'll give you about twenty seconds. Uh, we've been stuck between a one fourteen eighty and one eighteen eighty range for almost so long. I can't remember or dream of a life outside that. I think we'll still be in that range at Christmas. I'm afraid. Thank you very much, uh, Kit Jukes. He is uh, chief global FX strategist for Societe Generale. He's joining us uh, from London. And just to note that uh, European Central Bank President Mario Draghi will be appearing before a committee on economic and monetary affairs in Brussels. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, bringing you an expanding library of education with even more ways to sharpen your trading skills. Access new online courses, insightful webcasts, articles, engaging videos, and more, all curated just for traders. Plus, guided learning paths with content designed to fit your unique interests. 
No sifting to find exactly what you need so you can spend your time learning to trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. I want to turn our attention now to the world of automobiles, and we have Kevin Tynan. He is the Senior Autos Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, uh, Kevin, uh, Bob Lutz, the former uh, GM chief executive, you know, he's been skeptical about Tesla uh, and their future for a long time. And uh, he retired from General Motors. Uh, He also worked, obviously, for Ford and, and Chrysler and BMW. And I believe he's got some very specific comments when it comes to Tesla. He says, boy, the future does not look good. Uh, He says Tesla is doomed. Why do you think he says that? Well, just because of the financial condition of the company. Um, You know, he talks about it where you, you know, you, you can't cover your cost of manufacturing, uh, they've had access to capital basically for free, and it's just not a sustainable model. And the idea that I think the, the company gets valued as if it's a technology company, and I think Bob Lutz knows at the end of the day they are manufacturing, and it's expensive to do so, and you have long lead times. Uh, so there's the, the com- is a company that's not being valued as an automaker when what they're doing is making automobiles. All right, so let's dig into some of what it's making. Uh, Tesla just announced to great fanfare f- fan uh, trucks, autonomous trucks, and electric trucks. And uh, there is some speculation, Kevin, that they are pre-selling these trucks years ahead of their actually being made in order to raise money to continue production of their current orders rather than have to go to the public markets through Wall Street. Do you think that there is much truth to that? There there probably is some truth to that. I think at the end of the day, though, what what they will need in the next capital raise will be sooner and much uh, a much much larger scale than what they would get through these you know thousand roadster uh, um, deposits. How much so, money do they need? Uh, probably somewhere in the ballpark of two billion dollars. You know, if you just look at their cash burn run rate and what they have in the bank, uh, you're probably looking at mid 2018, where you know, and that's assuming running it right to the edge. Um, and I think. One thing that they didn't do, they've had that one profitable quarter, that third quarter last year, um, and they didn't go right to the market then. And it's more of an issue of you have this fanfare from the truck and the roadster, um, and you know you're going to need to go back. I would be doing it now while the hype is high, although the stock's down big today. Um, you know, sort of doing it when you can instead of when you have to. So let's talk about um, a legal threat that they have, just to sort of put that $2 billion potential capital raise into context. There is a $4.7 billion legal settlement that uh, could be coming up for Tesla. We haven't heard that much about this. Do you care about this? Um, yeah, there's a lot of noise um, you know, from a lot of different parties. And you, and you just think about... Uh, you know, the union, the UAW trying to get in there, you know, so it, it's, I, I think you really have to be careful and sift through the he said, she said, 
kind of things that go on around this company. And really what I try and do in that case is, is get beyond, you know, that noise, the noise of this truck and roadster and really get into what this, what it's going to take for this company to get model three out and delivered. Um, you know, because that's the core business that's going to enable them to fund all these other projects. And really until that happens, there's a lot of this other noise going on. Well, I wondered, Kevin, if you could just speak a little bit about the credibility that Elon Musk has, because in July, when they announced the Model 3, they were anticipating a production rate of about 20,000 cars a month by the end of December. And I read a couple of notes over the weekend that said that Tesla produced 260 Model 3s in the last quarter. That's three a day. Yeah, and and it's really a different world in that sense, Pim. You know, we we think back to you know Alan Mulally and and you know even Ford, yeah. You know, un, uh, you know, uh, you know, under under promise and over deliver, and and this is really a very different scenario. You know, but at the end of the day, I think the people that are are long the Tesla stock will say, well, he doesn't really hit that many targets, but he gets there eventually, and what he does deliver is really good. Okay, so, but if you were able to, if you did this at let's say GM, which I think yeah. what are they selling? Uh, how many volts? Uh, Five thousand. Well, they did about twenty eight hundred last month. Yeah. So, um, no, but you're right. To your point, there's a lot of things, and and even electric vehicle technology in the first place. If you remember. Early, in the early days of Model S, there were some fires just because of the the battery chemistry. Where I think investors looked at, at General Motors and Ford and said, "How come you guys aren't doing this?" And they said, "Look, if we put cars out there that went on fire, we'd you know we'd be crucified for that." So we're waiting for the technology to develop to where we can put vehicles out there safely. Autopilot, as Tesla calls it, is another thing that General Motors could not get away with any deaths in that. Uh, we see what happens with the ignition recall and what happens there. So this sort of idea of beta testing on your customers, General Motors, Ford, Fiat, Chrysler, all the big manufacturers, the global manufacturers, Toyota, couldn't get away with that. I'm just wondering when you said about uh, the people who are sticking with Tesla, I mean, isn't a big part of this that the people sticking with Tesla are Elon Musk himself, that he owns a good proportion of the shares? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But there is a very loyal, I mean, he, in an industry that is seen as company, dinosaur companies, you know, he's he's a breath of fresh air because his vision is sort of unlimited. Um, You know, so I think there's there's a lot of believers in that sense that that he's a disruptor and that this is the new norm and this is the kick that the auto industry needed. Right. Kevin Tynan, thank you so much for joining us. Kevin Tynan is our senior autos analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He's coming to us from our uh, BI headquarters in Princeton, New Jersey. Marvell Technology has agreed to buy the chipmaker Cavium for a cash and stock deal valued at about uh, $6 billion. This will set up more competition uh, with industry giants such as Intel and Broadcom. Here to tell us more about this is Ed Hammond, our deals reporter for Bloomberg. And Ed, uh, this seems like a bid to really consolidate not only uh, the semiconductors that are used for data storage, but also communications and networking chips, because that is Cavium's hotspot, right? 
Exactly that. And that's that's really the key to this deal. I mean, if you if you want to think about it like this, this is really um, Marvell buying future because Marvell's business is in hard drives, which obviously, you know, we use less and less. It's a, it, it's very slow growth. It's fairly stable. But what they don't have is anything that would take them into sort of the modern era in terms of having, as you say, sort of networking processes. So that's what they get through this deal with Cavium, which is why you're seeing it's, you know, it's a fairly healthy premium. But also, crucially, you've seen Marvell's stock rise quite a lot this morning on the back of this news. All right. So let's talk about that premium. I mean, as we've been talking, uh, this has been a very active year for chipmaker consolidation, or at least discussions of uh, such activity. And I'm just wondering, is anyone questioning the prices that are being paid? Marvell is uh, shelling out or has agreed to shell out about $6 billion for Cavium, which, as you say, is a premium. Is anyone saying it's too much? At this point, they're not. There's so much consolidation in this space that, you know, I think investors are rewarding those companies that are going out and acquiring because it's sort of acquire or be acquired. And so there is some sense So look, Marvell does this deal now with uh, Cavium, but that doesn't actually take Marvell off the table in terms of being a takeout target itself. Um, and you saw on a much, much larger scale just a few weeks ago when Broadcom obviously announced the deal for, or a, an offer for Qualcomm, I should say, that valued the company at $105 billion, which seems like an absurdly large amount of money. Even then, you saw Broadcom shares rise quite a lot on the back of that announcement. I'm just wondering, you know, in five years, are we going to view this as uh, exuberance that perhaps has the tint of irrationality just because uh, typically desperation does not make for good deals. No, it does not. And look, you could say that across the market at the moment. I think we're seeing in every sector a, a, a sort of heavy, heavy number of deals uh, and uh, and high prices paid. And, uh, you know, these are premiums on top of what are already historically sort of absurdly inflated levels in the stock market. So, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, a lot of these deals, and, and I don't limit this just to the semiconductor space, I think a lot of these deals will be called into question the amount people are paying. But the thing worth mentioning here is that, you know, a lot of the consideration for this is in the form of stock. So if you are Marvell, it's like, you know, your currency is inflated, you're paying a full premium for someone else. But hey, you know, as long as you're overvalued, it doesn't matter. I was going to say $46 billion, right? That's the price tag, I believe, for Qualcomm wanting to buy NXP. Right. Which I believe they just got the Japanese uh, approval. authorities' approval, right? So that Correct. may go through. And then as you just described, you've got Broadcom making this bid for Qualcomm. So in a sense, Broadcom will own, if this is successful, They'll own Qualcomm plus NXP. Right. And that's a $105 billion. But there's news out that one of the uh, large owners of, uh, I believe, Qualcomm stock says, give us at least $10 more per share. $10 more, right. So our colleagues in San Francisco did this great story that came out this morning where they've talked to a number of the big institutional investors in Qualcomm to sort of say, well, look, what, what would knock this over? What would be enough to get you guys to agree? And yeah, it sounds like a $10 or thereabouts bump from where we are now would be enough which, again, look, that's a huge, huge price and a very high multiple, but Broadcom has built itself up through acquisitions. And it's, if you look at Broadcom shares, I think they're up sort of, you know, in the region of 50, 60% this year. So this is something investors, not just in this space, but across the market, are rewarding those companies that go out and do deals. All right, Ed. Well, this consolidation does have a potential loser, right? Because if these uh, marriages end up with bigger chip makers that have better uh, pricing power, isn't that a problem for car makers and for Apple? I mean, who's the biggest loser here? You know, Apple is is 
almost a sort of outlier because they have so much power themselves as we're seeing they're they're sort of litigating with Qualcomm at the moment. Um, but I think you're right for the smaller customers, this is potentially a problem because you're seeing so much consolidation, you're seeing a shrinking supplier base. Um, you know, I think with, with this particular deal, the Marvell deal, one of the arguments that they could put forward is look, Yes, we're both in the chip space, but we're in very different parts of it. One is, as as you mentioned, it's sort of network processing, and one is in hard drives, which is a not quite yet redundant technology, but it's certainly something that's going out. I think where you're going to see problems is when these companies, you know, like Marvell, which are going to be built up through doing acquisitions, when someone else goes out to buy them, it's then also almost impossible that you don't have overlaps. Ed Hammond, thank you so much for joining us. A uh, fascinating issue this year of the chipmaker uh, takeover, uh, Marvell buying its rival, Cavium, for about $6 billion. Ed Hammond is a Bloomberg deals reporter and is joining us here in our 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.